0: Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASP again. My name is Peter, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Dr. Jason Silverman. How are you? How
1: was your break? Uh, I'm well Peter thank you. Um, I'm disappointed to be back at work to be honest <laughs> it was really nice to have uh, so much kind of concentrated time off. Um, yeah. I don't have anything exciting to share about it it was it was a real low key staycation. But it was nice to have lots of downtime, uh, watched a bunch of movies, had some lazy time with the kids, played with the dog. Nothing to write home about, but it was really, really nice to just have an extended time off. But how about you, Peter? Um, We talked last time about... Uh, your upcoming cruise and uh, that you had convinced your mother-in-law to go on this cruise. Mm -hmm. Uh, You had your, your, your daughter obviously was having her first cruise. How did it go?
0: Well, so uh, I guess, first of all, I mean, I'm very happy to see we both made it to 2023 and what year it's been so far. So yeah, we went on a cruise and I would say that it was successful. I mean, the biggest skeptic, my wife was uh, about to book another cruise before we left because you know they try to like really oh yeah give you incentives to book another cruise, but um uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know I could go on forever it was it went everything was smooth no one got sick um our <laughs> daughter like loved it she loves the beach and it was just I feel like it was the best like week of her life but um oh wow That's that awesome. was a good time yeah it was great I feel like we're gonna <laughs> this is gonna be a thing.
1: Oh wow! Well, I'm I'm glad it all worked out, and that you had such a good time. Um, and I'm still really jealous about the warm weather getaway. And uh, you know, I don't know if you inspired me, but my staycation was great. But I'm already looking to book our next holiday somewhere warm. Maybe uh, maybe a
0: Caribbean cruise. Who knows? Uh, it
1: will not be a cruise, but, but it will be a low-stress, probably all-inclusive yes. kind of trip somewhere somewhere in the Caribbean um, in, in March when the kids are off school. You
0: know, honestly, the only downside, which is partly my fault, is the all-inclusive nature. You know, we bought like the drink package and then it's like, well, it's, you know, 930 in the morning. Maybe I'll, you know, get my first beer of the day. It's like, it's like a, that kind of thing. <laughs> So, um, that to me was the one downside, which is my fault. I just wasn't mentally prepared to like really be uh, disciplined about, I mean, you can eat like 50 times a day if you wanted to.
1: Yeah. I remember the the cruise we took a few years back and, and seeing, you know, you know, everyone had had a huge dinner and uh-huh. then you go, uh, to the, to the nightclub or, or you just walk around the deck for a little bit and then they're setting up for like the, Dessert buffet, but the dessert buffet is not actually just a dessert buffet. It's also where you could have like basically a three course meal. Right. Again, um, <sighs> and who really needs to eat all that? But but I, I hear you. You know, y- y- you have to do what you want and feel like you <laughs> want to be doing or need to be like, doing, and ignore the fact that it is available twenty four seven. Like
0: it's a. I know it's a me. It's a me problem. But then also, <laughs> like every all inclusive situation, you're trying. I feel like you always feel this desire to try to hurt them financially as much as possible. (laughs) And so it was like, well, if we value this, you know, this like espresso martini at $15, okay, we have to drink seven of these to make it (laughs) worth it. So it was a lot of like that, which, um, yeah, so we're like, uh, you know, recovering now.
1: But yeah. um, the, the, you're never going to hurt mm. the cruise industry financially by how much you will eat or drink I on know. the cruise. Oh, that we, it, we you know, it's like it's like Vegas; the house always wins. Uh, you're you're not exactly going to, yes. You're not and even if you that. do win, like you kind of lose. So
0: yeah, that you're was gonna the one suffer. thing I, that uh, uh, next time might do might, might do differently. You know, today though we have an amazing episode that recorded not too long ago while we were at NASS in Florida, and it's a an mm-hmm. topic that I feel like is something that all of us are seeing so much more and more in practice this not really an epidemic but sort of an epidemic of teenagers who come with GI symptoms but also have orthostatic intolerance POTS whatever you want to call it I feel like for most of us it's not something we really learned in medical school or residency so what is this about and what do we have to know about it
1: I thought this was a really great uh, conversation for for me because it's certainly something I'm seeing a lot of in clinic recently, so um, it was a great conversation. Um, But I'll introduce our guest for this episode, Dr. John Fortunato, and he is the director of the Neurointestinal and Motility Program in Pediatric Neurology at uh, Lurie Children's at Northwestern University. And his academic and research focus really relates to better defining the mechanism underlying motility and functional gastrointestinal disorders. So he was a perfect guest uh, to bring in to help kind of clarify this conversation around POTS, orthostatic intolerance, and the relationship to um, functional GI disorders and how to navigate that with our patients. And
0: uh, I think the other thing is, as we talk about during the episode, he is so much more than just quote unquote, just a pediatric gastroenterologist. I mean, he has some experiences and current like uh, activities that just make him such an interesting person. Maybe, maybe the most interesting person in pediatric GI. We'll see. We'll let Possibly. the listeners decide. So anyways. So yeah, it was awesome kind of hearing about his career journey as well.
1: Absolutely. For sure. All right. Well, on to the episode, onto the show.
0: Oh, show onto the show. That's right. Oh man. <laughs> It's been a couple weeks off, okay? New year, new catchphrase. (laughs) Uh, Okay, on to the show. Dr. Fortunata. thank you so much for joining us on Ballast Sounds today. It's truly an honor to have you here with us.
2: Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate the invitation.
0: Oh, you're welcome. So, we're going to start with uh, perhaps the most challenging question for some of our guests. So, for those listeners who may not
2: know you, how would you
0: describe yourself in
2: only one sentence? <laughs> The, the first word that kind of came to mind was almost chaotic but I'll try to think of something more meaningful <laughs> I sort of at least throughout the, my career and life I seem to follow this road less traveled um, mm-hmm. as it, definitely not the traditional route so I think that probably would summarize it there's probably that's probably the nicest way I can put it there are yeah. other words I could probably use but that's road less traveled road less traveled right, not even like a sentence it. a phrase yeah, I know I like I'm, tra- I'm trying to be as concise as I can yeah 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 I think he good. gets
1: bonus points for even attempting to do it in one word chaotic yeah I, I thought <laughs> chaotic
2: really covered it um, but but you know, I'm, I'm I'm trying to put a positive glass half full um, right. angle on it. Chaos can
1: be a force for good.
2: It can. It keeps keeps it keeps you moving.
0: <laughs> I like that. If it's like a job interview, how would you describe yourself? Chaos. <laughs>
1: Hire this guy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'll see how that goes in my next interview. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
1: Um, we're gonna follow on with a, a new question for our guest.
2: Chicago is a beautiful city.
1: So much to see. So much to do. Eat. What is the one thing that if we're going to Chicago that we should see or do or eat that
2: the average tourist might miss? You know, I was thinking about that because I mean, there's when you think of Chicago, you think of food, you think of deep dish pizza, um, uh, you think of the sites, the Willis Tower and things like that. And I was trying to think of something a little off the beaten path. I'm, I'm, the first thing is I'm a big fan of architecture. Um and actually, it, this is very touristy, but my, actually my son and I enjoyed this. There's a uh, tour, a boat tour uh, yes. on the river that actually goes through the whole history of the city and describes the buildings both kind of chronologically. I actually live uh, literally around the corner from Frank Lloyd Wright's studio in, wow. in the Oak Park area. And so, so that, that's my personal preference is I love architecture. And so I mean, certainly take the architectural tour, but if you really want to look at something a little more unique, coming come to the Western suburbs and um, it, it's the architecture from the, you know, the 1910s 1920s is, is very geometric shapes and uh, I, to me fascinating. So that would be my, my plug for Oak park. Okay. I love it. I like that tip.
0: So I think your backstory <laughs> oh is God. a little bit different than the average pediatric GI with like a motility interest. So, you know, I, I remember, I think um, I went to one of your talks. Someone had mentioned that you did surgical training before your pediatric training and and I, you know, I also know that you are a physician in the military as well. <laughs> Tell us about that. How did everything? How did this life uh, path evolve?
2: Well, uh, hopefully, the word chaos makes sense now. Yeah, exactly. I, I, um, yeah, it's it's very interesting how things evolve over time, and um, and you kind of learn from your past experience. But I was pretty much set on cardiovascular surgery wow. uh, from day one, which is probably not a good thing. So my my recommendation for the future, not to jump to that question, is think very carefully and try everything out first, uh-huh. play the field. And so to speak. And, um, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I, that's what I was going to do. So I did my, my surgery pre, you know, medical school work and did some research in medical school and, did my um, residency at University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I think it was interesting. I I enjoyed surgery. Uh, I enjoyed the whole thought process. It's not, I didn't leave surgery because I disliked the discipline. Mm -hmm. It was really more, um, there were other things I I felt were more of a priority. So I actually did a a two-year cardiovascular research fellowship and I'm in between my third and fourth clinical year, I think it was, I really kind of fell in love with the, the research part of things and being part of a, a lab and a team. And um, and at, at the time I was doing kind of wet lab bench research. It just, it was all of a sudden you're trying to do that and you're trying to do good clinical care, patient care, and you're trying to be a good technician. And it just, it wasn't all going to to work. And so I sort of had to have my early midlife crisis in my thirties and and, um, and kind of prioritize things. And uh, people I know, my wife even said, said you know, who, who I've known for... 35 years said, uh, Yeah, I told you you should have been a pediatrician. Just a slow (laughs) slow learner. I guess the the moral of the story is listen to what you're told sometimes. um, But yeah, so I think at that point I kind of regrouped. Um, I I wasn't sure if it was the location or if it was really more what I wanted to do. And I took about uh, six months to really kind of figure Mm -hmm. that out. The folks at Johns Hopkins were kind enough to actually somehow uh, take me on. I, I know I must have been a high-risk investment for them as a, as, a, as a PGY 7 or 8 intern, ah. but they did. And actually, I said it's something that I've always been very grateful. Uh, it's it's a you know, phenomenal institution, and uh, that really kind of me, gave me my start, and that sort of evolved into... I, I couldn't necessarily see myself doing general pediatrics after... Ah. So this combination of sort of looking at mechanisms, uh, technical components, and... And it just seemed like the, the GI part fit in well from you know, my experience in surgery. And then um, they needed a motility person one day to, for some help. And they kind of sent me over to Kennedy Krieger, which is their um, feeding and research institute. Somehow I, 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 I guess I was volunteered and here I am now. So yeah. that was sort of the evolution from one thing to another.
0: That's awesome. And then so, you know, you're also a flight surgeon in the Air Force. Well, uh, part,
2: part of that is practical. Part of that is I've always wanted to to do something kind of more exploratory, like there were adventures, something like that. So... Mm-hmm. The practical part was I was a seventh year resident with two kids, and um, I, they don't they don't really pay interns a whole whole lot after <laughs> right. seven years. I decided that was one way to to keep the family afloat, yeah, uh, but also yeah. keep up some of the adult and you know, technical skills. And so I was actually in the Navy for uh, thirteen years. Oh wow! I spent a fair number of my much of my time on with on the uh, what's called the green side, the Marine Corps side of things. So I was with uh, Marine Corps units and. And doing a lot of field work. And then again, the same problem came up was that trying to to run a Marine Corps medical <laughs> unit and do my day job. Um, and so at that point, I was either going to either get out of the military, um, go back and just do regular physicals for the Navy, which kind of was sounded boring. And then I got into a pack of uh, flight surgeons in the Air Force who uh, convinced me. And so I I think it's about um, six, seven years now. I went back to school again in, in aerospace medicine and got my wings wow. uh, back in 2000. 2000- yeah,
0: it is. I think chaos, uh, it's yeah. not chaos. It's just like a constantly control, control new adventures,
2: maybe. you know? I actually <laughs> had to. So one of the, the only caveat with the Air Force was um, if you're a flight surgeon, you have to actually, whether you're a doctor, pilot, whatever, you have to do your survival training. And most people do it when they're between eighteen and at the oldest thirty. Needless to say, I I i was the class leader or it just by age and um and I had to do that last year, wow. which was uh ten days of sort of interesting survival. Uh um, oh my gosh. So um so I I had no idea what to expect. And there's a little bit of that sort of um you know that fear going into it that you know the there were people in my group that were nineteen years old. I mean they were younger than my kids. And <laughs> and I'm thinking, well I'm uh, well, at least hopefully they'll, they'll be able to cart me away. Right. That exactly. So, so, uh, but yeah, it makes it interesting.
1: Wow. I got to, I have to ask. So, uh, flight surgeon, neurogastroenterologist, you do research, like, um, when is it that you sleep?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm working on that at some point. Um, <laughs> right. it's, um, I don't want to say that the air force is my mental health break from my regular job. Um, mm-hmm. but it kind of is. And I think the thing that I, we, we actually have a group, I'm, I'm at Wright Patterson, um, with the 445th, and um, it's just a great group of people. We play well together, and uh, we can be crazy you know, together. But it's, uh, so I think that's where it becomes almost addictive that you have a team like that. And so, I mean, yes, they they do pay me technically, uh, but it's, you know, I really enjoy it. I enjoy flying, I enjoy working with um, our people, and I think that's that's kind of what, kind of what makes work fun, whether it's at my, my day job or my sort of weekend-ish job, so to speak. Right, right, right. right. <laughs>
0: And as if that were not enough, you're also an
2: entrepreneur and, uh, and now a business school student, right? MBA yeah. student. Yeah. I'm about two thirds, almost two thirds, uh, done. And I think that's, um, it's actually fun. You know, when you, when you get older, you know, it's more fun to, to, you know, to be in school learn uh-huh. things. It's a, it's a different perspective. Right. And, um, and, and Kellogg has been great. I mean, it's been very much a collaborative type of thing. and It's, it's a certain every business school has its way of doing things. Some are more you know, didactic and some are more group oriented. this is very um, interactive. And so, you know, I'm collaborating with people old, well, mostly younger than me and with some of the faculty. It's fun because again, it becomes that, you know, these different sort of circles or, or teams that you have. And so I can step into that world and, and it still connects very much with the neurogastro world, but it's also looking at, you know, the idea of commercializing uh, technology and, and, their expertise and their, and and it's a very respectful collaboration. Um, there's a lot that I don't know. There's a lot that they don't know. And I think it's just bringing kind of these interesting teams together. Um, so yes, I still have a a midterm exam in two weeks, uh, which I gotta be (laughs) honest, I'm you know, I'm a little behind on, but it's been fun and it's a different perspective than when I was, you know, trying to get into medical school like thousands of years ago.
1: Right. Wow. Uh, it's very cool. But so you mentioned, you know, neurogastroenterology and motility work. How did you get into your interest in in the orthostatic intolerance and dysautonomia and their relationship to GI symptoms?
2: Yeah, I think it, well, like most things, it was an accident. I mean the true story is I, I was I, I was in North Carolina where I started my career and um and we had a patient who um came in functional pain, nausea and and I just, it was interesting. I just asked, well, anything else I need to know about? And he said, oh, I, f- I faint once or twice a week, but that's not in your, your arena. And and I thought about it for a second. It was, it was very eye-opening because it, it, what it really kind of underscored is when you take a siloed approach to things and you, <laughs> you're you not looking at the, the whole picture, you kind of miss things. And so we, you know, we talked a little further. And again, it sort of seemed like there was that, the, the Venn diagram intersected to some degree that there were GI functional symptoms and there were, Orthostatic dizziness symptoms and, you know, you know, correlation doesn't prove causation necessarily, but certainly there seemed to be some connection with that. So then I, again, I got into a, another crowd of, or I could say a bad crowd of, of cardiovascular or autonomic <laughs> people. And we just started to kind of dig a little deeper with that. And I think, I think the helpful part was, you know, what, what causes motility disorders? And that's really meant to be a facetious question. It's just, it's, there's so many um, avenues for things, you know, in terms of cause effect. As we dug a little deeper and, um, and I had the cardiovascular background, this is the first time it actually helped a little bit because we started okay. looking at not just orthostatic issues, but like heart variability, and you know, the parameters for cardiovascular instability. And we started to define phenotypes and that's sort of how one thing led to another is that we we're seeing some patients actually have a combination of, of things that really go into this, you know, more somatic-type symptoms, dizziness, lightheadedness. And then there's, you know, it's we talk about the biopsychosocial approach. It really is, it stands true with this because a lot of those patients have long-standing symptoms that don't get recognized um, for a period of time. They develop more increasing anxiety because of the, you know— Functionality issues and quality of life issues, and then there are GI issues, and it's just trying to kind of connect those those dots, so to speak, between you know wh- what what causes what, or if you can actually do that.
1: Right. No,
2: that
0: makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you know, leading into our topics, so I think sure. the first part is defining what exactly it is we're talking about, because I think people use some of these terms interchangeably, especially things like orthostatic intolerance or vasovagal syncope or. <laughs> POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And so how do you like, what are we talking about here? How would you define those? And, and how do those relate to dysautonomia? Yeah.
2: So I think the easiest thing is to start with the basics, go back to medical school, signs and symptoms or mm-hmm. symptoms and signs. So orthostatic intolerance is a symptom. If I dehydrate myself and stay out too late and, uh, and, and I get up in the morning and stand up and I'm dizzy, I have right. orthostatic intolerance. Yeah. It's like this morning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's <laughs> about to say, you know, and, uh, um, so that really is a symptom, symptomatic presentation. Do, do people with with POTS um, syncope? Do they have that manifestation? That they do, but there's other uh, manifestations that go along with it. So really, I think towards practically putting it together. You know, when you're when you're interviewing patients or doing a history, you're interviewing for, or, or in, taking a history for orthostatic intolerance. Do you get dizzy when you stand? Are you lightheaded? Um, POTS, uh, neurocardiac syncope, orthostatic hypotension used to be described as neural immediate hypotension, those are the signs because Mm -hmm. those are defined. And actually it took a while, but um, so I I work with the American Autonomic Society. We actually, after multiple years, we actually have a pediatric subcommittee and we've, we've working on, I think our second or third consensus statement paper and really what POTS and these other conditions are, are, are defined by kind of consensus guidelines. So by definition, POTS is a 40 bit increase in heart rate within 10 minutes of orthostatic challenge, basically or tilt table. That's really how it's defined. Uh, orthostatic hypotension is a 20 millimeter drop in, in systolic blood pressure within three minutes. So again, you see these are there are really defined parameters with those conditions. So the reason I think it's helpful is um, you don't have to have pots to have debilitating orthostatic intolerance. Mm-hmm. Because you know the other question you asked was, "What about the autonomic nervous system? Do all these patients have dysautonomia?" And that's a dangerous kind of term because, yeah, you know, I think having autonomic symptoms is probably the better way to describe it. Because most of the patients we have, you know, is it GI symptoms, visceral hyperalgesia, sort of that kind of afferent um, precipitant for for their orthostatic symptoms, or do the orthostatic symptoms cause the GI sim- uh, uh, complaints? And so, t- to me, it's almost really not critical that you say, well, I got to find out if I have POTS. The question is, well, if you have orthostatic intolerance, you know, you have to draw your timeline. Was there a trigger? Was there a catalyst? And a lot of patients do. Um, some patients will tell you, I got a stomach bug on Christmas day and um, and I haven't been the same since. So really getting that sort of timeline of things in that chronology is important. POTS gets thrown around a lot. It's like I got a mm-hmm. little touch of the POTS. Well, <laughs> to, to, to have how, to how POTS, you really have to have those cardiovascular parameters. So OI is becoming uh, Really, the better term to use, but it's still not well adapted because "pots" is easier to say. Right, if you Google right. "pots," everyone you find a thousand hits on that,
0: right? Yeah. Right, and on social media, and,
2: yeah, yes. that's another right, topic. The, uh, exactly. <laughs> well, well, actually, it's interesting because that that has become a, a real serious I'll say epidemic, but a problem yeah. because, mm-hmm. you know social media is, is is nice and everything for connecting with people but um, sometimes there's a lot of misinformation oh, that yeah. goes out again this is a little bit off topic but you know a lot of our patients who have really debilitating symptoms there's been this thought well we, we just need more fluids we can all get central line placement right. and, mm-hmm. and, and which is something we actually we made, we commented on in our um, in our consensus statement that it's we do not recommend that it's it's dangerous and again you have to you know case by case look at the circumstances but you know People don't necessarily die of POTS. They they die of complications from some of the treatments or, in that case, you know, right. uh, line access.
1: I wanted to ask, because people do talk a lot about POTS on social media, and we all see patients where they walk into the clinic suspecting that they have POTS, and I'm seeing increasingly uh, people raising questions of, you know, hypermobile, EVS. Oh, yeah. Or you know, mast cell activation syndrome, and and there seems to be almost this confluence mm-hmm. of these rare, relatively rare, but maybe harder to define or somewhat nebulous conditions. Are, are you see encountering that, and and what's your take on on that?
2: Yeah, I think the first thing is um, this kind of gets back to sort of my interest in the technology and and patient reported outcomes that you have to get the whole the whole picture, and it's hard because I mean you know if you have 20, thirty minutes to do a, to do a history and you 're going through all those comorbidities you know it's you spend the ha- you know, half the time doing that and then you have to figure out the plan in the last you know two minutes or you run an hour late in clinic which is kind of what we 're notorious for <laughs> but but I think it's relevant uh, ideally what I'd love to be able to do is collect that data kind of in a user friendly way in advance and that's we try to we actually do, we send out a whole packet of, of uh, symptom intake and uh, patient report outcomes measures. We do the nausea profile. We, and and we, as a team, we discuss this in advance. We try to frame kind of what we think is going on. So to, the, to answer your question about the comorbidities, yeah, we're seeing tons of a-list analyst, so much so that I do a uh, bite and, uh, test on every single patient I see because it takes two minutes. Um, if it's unremarkable, it's unremarkable. If someone is way hypermobile um, the other things that go along with that as well, you know, very refractory constipation, colonic dilatation issues. And so, so again, this is that whole notion of, you know, you got to have all the dots to connect the dots. And I think if you wind up, you know, if you see someone in, with abdominal pain and refractory constipation and you're thinking just, you know, scope or monometry test, you're missing that whole picture. Uh, we do a mental health screening. You know, anxiety is it just goes hand to hand with this, not because they're you know, the anxiety is causing all the symptoms, but it's it, within that kind of. Spectrum of, of everything you mentioned mast cell activation that's that gets oh, sometimes a little more dangerous attention it's like everyone has that and pots and a little touch of EDS um, with mast cell I mean that we we do go through some of the, the, the basic questions uh, s- skin sensitivity issues um, you know allergies things along those lines we do and I'm, that's definitely not my area of expertise but I think. Everyone's looking for sort of that magic bullet. They're kind of like, well, if I have mass activation disorder and I treat that, then everything will disappear. And it's not that easy. The longer a patient's sick, the more deconditioned they get, which compounds their, cardi- their orthostatic symptoms, which make their GI symptoms worse, and they they lose weight, gain weight. And so really, it's, it's, it's kind of you know, working. It's not linear. It's very <laughs> three-dimensional, so to speak.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like you were saying before. It's like you can't just stay in your silo. It's really about the biopsychosocial model and like all the things that come with it. It's a lot more complex than just, you know, making sure they don't have IBD.
2: Right. And I think, I hope we're evolving medicine-wise into more kind of multidisciplinary integrated uh, clinics. That's, we actually have kind of reframed our motility clinics into interdisciplinary psychology, nutrition, GI. We have, that's sort of one kind of pocket. We actually are starting our first cardiology GI, we don't have a name for it yet, quote unquote, POTS clinic with mm-hmm. nutrition and psychology on Halloween seems oh, nice. really ironic actually, but, <laughs> um, So um, I think that's really one of the first um, yeah. to do that where we, you know, we can have a conversation real time with our cardiology colleagues sitting next to us and our dietitian and our psychologist and work instead of me sending a message to the psychologist to, you know, rule out mental health issues. It's more of a, you know, how does that impact the big picture? And I think that's, it's more fun against that team approach mm-hmm. to clinical care and, and research.
0: Right. right? So we talked about how, like, yes, there's this association that we're all seeing becoming more and more common. Um, so, like, how would you answer the Pete's GI doc who's like, why do I need to know about this? Like, what's What do you think is the link between some of those other conditions, including especially orthostatic intolerance
2: and GI symptoms? So I think the big question or the important question in terms of why do you need to know about this is we, so we did a st- study I think it was in General Pete's a few years back where we looked at our patients and it was interesting we uh, we were looking at what the symptoms were we looked at how many procedures the patients had gone through how many gallbladders were removed oh jeez. and um, and the truth is we had we were we I think our record was like we had one teenager would have had like 10 endoscopies oh, wow. and you know, what's that definition of insanity yeah. <laughs> Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And, and so, yeah, that's not without cost and consequence. And so when you do sort of your, your I think your history taking physical exam, not, not to be old fashioned, but they really, it's, where you, it's really where you get um, a lot of that data. It's really, you know, you getting the right answer and, and get, it gets back to the sort of like grassroots about, you know, our differential diagnosis. And so it's not that hard to ask. I mean, and especially for functional symptoms, you know, our colleagues in NASP have published on sort of the uh, utility of, of endoscopy relative to abdominal pain and nausea. And in our study, we actually found, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it was only like 30%-ish of patients with upper endoscopies actually even had any finding, much less anything that was relevant or mm-hmm. to uh, to their symptoms. And I think for the colonoscopies, it was like 10 12%. When I was a general surgeon, if if my my appendectomy, my appendectomy rate was ten percent, um, that would have that would have been a short career. So, <laughs> right. so really, I just think I think the the important thing is it's it's not that hard to ask. Yeah. It really does from just sort of a value based medicine approach, I think, is vital. So yeah, w- so what happens if you have someone coming in with functional chronic nausea and abdominal pain, and and you address constipation issues, you optimize their fluid and salt intake, and they feel ten percent better? Well, you're making ten percent progress, and so. All you need to really ask is: Do you feel dizzy? Do you feel lightheaded when you're standing? If you don't ask, you don't know. Right. Yeah. So I think that's and it's they're not that difficult questions to, to present to your patients.
0: And like you mentioned, it can change your management, right? So
1: maybe
2: right.
0: addressing that will be
1: as
2: right.
0: effective as uh, GI medications, for example.
1: And you've sort of alluded to this in some of your uh, previous answers, but when you you know if somebody is coming into this relatively new, we you know we have a lot of fellows who are listening. Or you know, just general GI uh, docs who who may not feel up on all of the, these new terminologies uh, to, to to them. What do you what would you say are sort of the most common um, either group of symptoms or specific functional GI disorders where there is either some contribution from or overlap with orthostatic intolerance?
2: Yeah, I think pain has always been the the, the big thing, functional pain. But I'm I'm a functional nausea person, and that's kind of I don't know if that's a good label to put. To myself, but, <laughs> um, but I think one of the things I found that was interesting is a lot, a lot of people don't ask about detailed questions about nausea. And they ask, you know, how many times a day do you vomit? Do you have pain? What's your poop like? And the truth is uh, one of my mentors who spent his whole career studying nausea um, is like, it, it really is a pervasive and probably one of the most debilitating symptoms. So toward that end, I usually ask at the beginning of a, of a, n- a new patient consult. So what's, you know, what's, what's your worst symptom? what's most debilitating. And if you have nausea, where's your nausea located? And it sounds very Mm -hmm. weird to ask that, you know, for such a subjective type of symptom, but I've never had anyone yet who hasn't been able to point to a a location, you know, whether it's people with migraine headaches tend to point more toward their head, you know, upper belly, epigastrium, lower And it sort of gives you some sense of, of what their definition of nausea is. So, so to answer your question, I mean, you know, nausea, abdominal pain, um, you know, oftentimes, the latter attributed to stool retention, particularly if we're talking about some of the other comorbidities. Um, the dizziness or lightheadedness seems to be very common. And again, it cause or effect. If you, if you're having ton, really tons of abdominal pain, you have that sort of vagal response. Either way, you, you need to, you, you can assimilate and put those, the, that data together, but you need to have that. So, um, but really pain and nausea are, are the, are the big things. And in addition to kind of getting that
0: information in the history, um, for the patient where you are hearing some of those signs of orthostatic intolerance, are there any, like you mentioned the Biden score, but other than that, any uh, objective measurements like orthostatic vital signs and how do you use that? And also I know you do tilt table testing. How does that play into the evaluation?
2: So I think, I think the bedside orthostatic test is really easy to do. We've mm-hmm. all come to an agreement about the best way to, to do it. And that is we you know, usually after we've we've done the history and the physical exam, I usually have patients lie down on the exam table and then I say, I'm going to leave now. You're going to lie down there, usually for about you know, five to 10 minutes. Um, that's enough time to sort of sneak out and and bring our nurse back to do um, the orthostatic challenge. And so we we it's very simple. In the, in the old days, you'd lie down, sit down, stand up. We just do a baseline heart rate and blood pressure lying down. And then we have patients immediately stand up. And we ask, again, s- symptom uh, association with uh, vital sign changes. So if they get up and they're about ready to fall over, well, we, we usually stop there. And but we know we ask, are you dizzy? What, how are you feeling? Is are you nauseated? A lot of patients on tilt tables, and we'll get to. Um, actually, that's where they elicit their nausea. Actually, mm-hmm. so so we have them stand up straight away, and um, and then we wait three minutes. So it's a really a three minute bedside test. Standing up without leaning on anything, and we repeat the uh, heart rate and blood pressure. Now, is it a perfect test? No, but you you know you can. Do you need to? have a 40 beat increase to say you really have a condition or not. No, you just, I think if you see a patient whose heart rate goes up by 30 beats per minute, even though it's not technically POTS and they're symptomatic and they're cold and clammy. I mean, that's, that's important data that you can get real time. The tilt test is sort of like whenever you do a, a, a diagnostic test, you know, what are you looking for? What are you gonna do with the data? And yeah, we think about that before we do invasive procedures, but with a tilt, it's the same type of thing. Yeah, you know, the, the cardiologists will say, well, I don't need a tilt test necessarily to, to, you know, to diagnose POTS. And, and I would agree with that, but really part of the reason we have our own tilt lab now in, in motility is not to say, oh, you got POTS, have, you know, have a, have a nice day. Um, it's really more to, again, see what, see what the cardiovascular changes are over, over that period of time. Yeah, we do want to define POTS or, or orthostatic hypotension, Number two, we're using more of a Likert scale to actually monitor symptoms. So we do that. We try to figure out the optimal time. We don't want to ask people how they feel like every two minutes. Otherwise, it's going to, it's, first of all, it's not going to be accurate. But we do that baseline. We do that um, when they're tilted. And we do that when they're supine again. We monitor their uh, their gastric rhythm. so yes, we do electrogastrograms (EGGs), and and I think that's always been um, a question about, you know, what, what's the value of that test, and we're still <laughs> in the process of figuring that out. But you know, I think when you when you see a demonstrable change in symptoms from supine to upright, and nausea goes from a one to a seven, and then you are seeing a normal rhythm going to a tachygastria, again, it sort of helps put it in context and put some objective measures uh, to, to things. And so that to me is the value is not just doing um, a till test to say you got POTS, but to see, can you reproduce symptoms? And if you do, what are those symptoms you reproduce? Because that sort of gauge, gives you a sense of, you know, chicken and egg to some to some degree. And then do we focus on motility issues in the you know, stomach or do we think, address the orthostatic issues and then reassess? The other thing we are trying to do is, we are doing now, is we're incorporating heart rate variability in our testing. Heart rate variability is sort of a kind of biomarker of global, of general health. And uh, and so it's not specific to say, oh, well, you have stomach pain because your heart rate variability is off. But but again, it's another biomarker. Right. It's very easy to calculate. And, um, and I think it just, again, gives the whole picture with the other data that we get.
0: And I wonder, do you feel like that having that kind of more objective data goes a long way in trying to explain what the underlying kind of mechanism or pathophysiology of this disorder is to the family?
2: Yeah. I, I'm, I think it's important to be very transparent and I yeah. I don't, I don't go in there saying, well, yeah, I know you got this. And right. so it's, this is a humble sport <laughs> that we're playing, right. but uh, generally speaking, I, I kind of go through my thought process based upon, and it, I think what's helpful is, you know, knowing 80% of what's going on with the patient before I walk in the room is actually very helpful because, you know, you, you use that time to sort of qualify some things and just, you know, clear some things up and then say, okay, this is my, my hypothesis. And this was my suspicion beforehand. Uh, it's changed a little bit from what you said, but this is what I think. And, and so and I, and I basically the same thing we just talked about. I tell them what we're looking for. I said, I think, you know, a lot of this is a combination of you, you had a virus that may have precipitated whatever's going on, the orthostatic symptoms are are relevant. The GI symptoms are debilitating. And and we're we actually have a psychologist in our multidisciplinary clinic. And I I explain it to patients that it's not to see if it's a mental health issue causing your symptoms. It's more again, it's kind of that holistic approach mm-hmm. that, you know, you can't do your AP classes, you're freaking out. Um that's part of kind of a care plan, a global right. care, care plan. And so it gets back to what's your main what's your main symptoms? Should we focus on this first? And then based upon that, we're going to try to get some other information. Come up with a treatment plan and reassess, but you know th- these aren't patients. Appendicitis is easy, with all due respect to my surgery colleagues. It's um, it's black and white, and and, and I think I, I try to set that expectation early on because I think if you come off as you know knowing everything, um, yeah, you know, you're, you're doomed to fail and have patients really, you know, well, despise you. Um, and so I think it really in the in the first meeting, it's more of an understanding. Okay, this is a chronic issue. We have to dissect it. We got to you know let's. Go for the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, and then and then regroup. And I think most patients, you know, I mean, they're they're generally open to that. And I think yeah. if you c- take that approach, um, you know, everyone's on the same page. Mm-hmm.
1: When you have that patient there in front of you, and you've talked through what are the most bothersome symptoms for them, and that combination of of features that that you walk through with the family, if you think that this is somebody where orthostatic intolerance, if you think that's part of the child's presentation what do you do? Like what's what's your next avenue for helping um, in terms of, you know, lifestyle modifications, supplements, uh, referrals, you mentioned psychology supports. What are, what are your next steps?
2: Yeah, I think there's some easy things that anyone could recommend. One is, you know, is the fluid and salt. And so is there a perfect recommendation? No, but, uh, you know, Mayo Clinic has has their parameters. We've sort of, kind of followed a uh, derivative of that. So, two, two and a half liters of, of, of water, fluid a day, um, salt, five to seven grams for the goal. Now, again, it's hard to tell someone, okay, just make sure you salt your foods to you know, <laughs> seven grams. So, it, depending on how debilitating the, the symptoms are, um, yeah, sometimes we'll say, okay, salt your food, extra salt to, your, to taste on your foods, make sure you're drinking you know, uh, fluids. And um, we talk about even uh, recumbent exercises. There's a lot of very good data on that in, in the adult population. Um, now, th- these patients are dizzy when they're, when, they're, when they're standing. Ask them to go on a treadmill is probably not an ideal circumstance. So we think about recumbent exercises, you know, rowing machine, recumbent bike, swimming is an outstanding exercise. And, and we pace it based upon sort of the severity of symptoms. And so I think the fluids are, are, are to me, a no-brainer. Um, worst case scenario, you, you pee a lot and that's okay. Um, same with the salt. The other thing is compression. So we're, we're in Florida, uh, you know, Kennedy space center. Um, you know, the na- interesting thing about astronauts is how astronauts get pots when they, so to speak, or orthostatic intolerance when they come back, because mm-hmm. despite their, um, and this is an aerospace medicine thing. So I get to enjoy this a little bit, <laughs> um, despite keeping up with their cardiovascular exercises, it's kind of hard to do that when there's, you know, zero gravity. Mm-hmm. And so if you ever see from the, from the old days when people would come back, And they would, they would usually have two people holding them side by side because they could barely stand up. And it's because they're, they're orthostatic. And so at one point, and I, I, I want to make sure I'm accurate on this. NASA had actually come up with a a $30,000 sort of compression suit to increase basically, uh, volume return, uh, to, to the core. Um, yeah, they don't sell it to, to to anyone, so don't 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 go on to buy <laughs> that. But what it underscores is, you know, okay, why are you orthostatic? It's probably because there's some degree of venous pooling of blood in you, in your legs, your thighs, abdomen, and so compression is something that can be helpful. And I think that's something that gets a little bit confused because people think, well, you know, just stockings, and it really, if you think about it for a moment, if you're trying to increase you know, preload to the heart, um, you really need to have some compression from your ankles, really too your belly, mm-hmm. your belly button or above. Is there a perfect um, device out there? Not really. You know, people talk about there's biking, expand, all those types yeah. of things. Yeah. The bottom line is, yeah, it's, it's helpful to have some compression within reason. It's not always the most, patients aren't always adherent to that because it's not always the most comfortable thing. But you, know, when you combine that with the fluids and the salt and the recumbent exercises, you get a sense of, are you going to make a difference or not? And if things are really off the charts debilitating, well then, do you do more formalized, you know, tilt table testing, autonomic testing? Do you think about even like day hospital uh, re- rehab programs? Mm-hmm. We actually have a program in Chicago where we sent quite a few patients um, that actually is very, you know, but you know, again, biopsychosocial in terms of you know pain management and PT and, and mental health support. So that's where I start. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of let's throw someone on flutocortisone or mineralocorticoid just to see what happens. I, I, I think it's kind of important because again, some people do well, some people don't. And I think if you have the phenotype better defined, you'll know who's going to have the better outcome. But it's something that's in our toolbox, but for a later stage.
0: Okay. I was going to say, so like, do you, for the compression part, because that's not, I don't, so I I talk a lot about fluid and salt, but the compression part, how do you uh, like practically recommend that? Do you say like, oh, maybe try compression stockings first or buy some like really, tight leggings or something yeah. like i don't know i mean quite
2: honestly that, that's that's, that's yeah, what we do okay. i mean um because yeah i'll have to put that on my my entrepreneurial list of <laughs> yes but uh it's just uh,
0: i'm really tired i mean week. that would uh, definitely take off like <laughs> put on social media i know hot yeah,
2: leggings all right we'll talk offline i guess yeah, yeah. but um yeah I, I mean that's really what it comes down to
1: yeah. right i mean there's running uh compression leggings right yeah, yeah type yeah. of thing yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think that's the, and I think in a lot of ways we're also pediatric folks. So, you know, trying, if you, if you tell an adolescent to wear something that's really like you know, something that your, your, your grandparents would wear, good luck. And uh, so it has, so if you can sort of, you know, pitch it in a lot of ways as uh, something that's, um, I don't know, more, more sporty and right. look good. Like, I don't
0: know. Lululemon, but a right. size too small for you or, right, yeah. or
1: from <laughs> one of the Kardashians, maybe. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, and I is out of our wheelhouse.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm not going to endorse a, a, a leggings company. No, yeah, exactly. But, but I know I do think, and again, it doesn't, it, to, to be honest, and one thing that's important to kind of put in perspective is, it's not like you do that. You have one, you do one thing and nothing else because right. it's really the cumulative effect. And so the goal of doing this is just as diagnostic as it is uh, therapeutic. I mean, if you say, I want you to do religiously do the, the fluids and salt and the recumbent exercises and the compression. And I want to know if it makes you 0% better, that's important. If you're, you know, 30% better, that's important. And then do you, you build off that. And so I think if you're not optimizing that initial recommendation, then is enough going to help or not? Well, Florinoff's not a magic, you know, magic solution to things. And so I think it's, and that's how I explain it is that you know, the patients are part of the process and um, doing a trial like that is, is a diagnostic strategy as much as it is treatment.
1: Right. And then how how long do you give that before you follow on and say, okay, you're 10, 20% better. Um, now it's time to level up or what? where can we go from here?
2: No, we we, we sort of ask them. And, and I think it really kind of depends on where they are. So some patients feel, like, well, I'm better enough to, be as functional as where I need to be at this point. And, and I, I ask him point blank, because again, this is not the appendicitis where it's like, should we take out your, your inflamed appendix or not? It's it's um, it's a, okay. We're trying to f- address functionally debilitating symptoms. And so I'll say point blank, listen, you know, you, you're going to go back to doing I don't know, lacrosse. Um, are you in a, you know, in a place where you're, you're good with that. Some kids will say, oh, I want to give it another two, three months and see if I can, can build off what we've, we started. Sometimes like I'm dropping out of school, or I'm going to do homeschooling and and that's, you know, that can be a hard stop. If they're really debilitated and if they're talking, I need IV fluid boluses, well, then we have to, we have a different discussion that would tend to expedite them more. When I say aggressive, just a little bit more of a thorough uh, diagnostic um, workup because I don't want them to go that, that that route of, oh, I need an IV constantly. Then yeah, you're, that's a trade-off for other circumstances.
0: If we're thinking more about, okay, maybe they didn't respond, the more severe side. So you mentioned mm-hmm. Um When do you use that? And then are there other, any other medications that you have found helpful? I know it's kind of like not oh, not strictly the GI realm anymore, but what do you think about pharmacological management?
2: Yeah, I think I usually like to do TILT testing in, uh, before making decisions okay. for a few reasons. Mm-hmm. Like I can think about the mechanisms. So, um so if you have a if you if you become tachycardic if you truly have pots 140 beats a minute there are different treatment algorithms versus if you go tilt upright and your blood pressure drops to 40. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think you know fluorinef is just a volume expander for mm-hmm. all intents and purposes it's a mineralocorticoid you know if you need to be taking sufficient sodium for it to really have its maximal clinical effect and so basically it's like getting a mini IV fluid bolus I guess um, so more more intravascular sodium. You know, water to follow, and that's really where we've we've seen some, some effect with just the um, venous pooling part of things. You just you're increasing your 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 volume, so I think the the best equation is your cardiac output. I mean, when you think about it, you know, your heart rate times stroke volume, and so you know, patients who have pots basically pots is a normal adaptive response. If if the tank is low, if your stroke volume is effectively low, you know, your heart rate should go up. I mean, you're mm-hmm. so. What may be causing pots? Well, your effective stroke volume is low. Your body doesn't like that. You shoot out epinephrine, norepinephrine, catecholamines. Your heart rate goes up. Mm-hmm. Appropriate response, but it feels lousy. I mean, if you ever you know want to inject epinephrine into yourself, it will make you nauseated. Please don't. But um, <laughs> but it's it's, it's it's something to kind of keep keep in mind. And so yeah, that that is a normal physiologic adaptive response to those circumstances. So part of the reason you know, so fluorineph is kind of broad strokes, you know, volume mm-hmm. expander. Folks have used low-dose beta blockers or even eye channel blockers to lower the heart rate because when your heart rate's 140 and you're shooting out those catecholamines, mm-hmm. it feels awful. So it's you want to take the edge off that heart rate, but if you take off too much of the edge and your stroke volume is effectively lower, right. and your card- you, you go down. Right. So getting back to sort of a treatment strategy, if you don't know, you know what, what someone's blood pressure is and you crank them with a beta blocker, yeah, you can make a bad situation worse. Right. And then the other end of things are the um, alpha agonists like uh, midodrine or mitadrine, which increase uh, ter- say peripheral uh, vascular resistance. Hmm. The problem is it's not—it's <laughs> not like it makes your your peripheral vascular resistance you know tighter when you're standing up and then it relaxes when you're. It's right. it's a blunt instrument, yeah. and so one of the problems we've sometimes seen with that is it can help take the edge off, but it can also give you headaches sometimes. It can also give you supine hypertension. And so one of the questions, you know, again, in the do no harm rule, and this is something we explored about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, is what happens to those patients, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, what causes essential hypertension? You know, that's kind of a trick question. We don't know, but we actually did see some patients who, were on long-standing um, either Midadrine plus florinef who had supine hyper, uh, supine hypertension, um, mildly supine hypertension who actually developed uh, left ventricular hypertrophy over wow. like ten years, oh, wow. and so you know again you got to be you know careful I mean this is symptomatic treatment so I, I really consider any of the pharmacologics a bridge therapy to you know, cardiovascular conditioning and even an aggressive you know, PT type of program. Mm-hmm
0: as someone who also sees a lot of patients with nausea and orthostatic symptoms, I mean, as you kind of alluded to before, sometimes, you know, IV fluids really can make a big difference from like a symptomatic standpoint. Um, what do you say when you have a family coming to you saying like, Hey, we're in the emergency room or in maybe IV clinic getting fluids all the time. I want a port. I want a central line. Like what do you, how do you respond to that?
2: I'm pretty blunt about it. (laughs) Um, I'll say number one, um, there is really no evidence out there that supports that. So again, if we're if we're going to practice evidence based medicine mm-hmm. and say, well, we're going to do it to you, if you just, then we also have to be prepared for the fact that if something bad happens. Right. Um, and I'm I'm very blunt about that. I, I sometimes I'll even tell them about you know a patient we've had who's who's you know succumbed so to speak mm-hmm. to to those circumstances. Not to frighten patients, but to put some context that mm-hmm. it's not just you know I, I used to put central lines in. They're kind of easy to do, but you know they get infected. They right. have blood clots and um, and so I, I I tell them basically if we have to work on ten different strategies to uh, to get you to a better place I'd rather you know if you're willing to do a central line you should be willing to do like a six week in you know inpatient rehab I mean mm-hmm. I, this is you know just th- throwing that out there as an example because you know it's all well and good if your kid doesn't have a major complication but if it's your <laughs> your kid so to speak that has you know line sepsis um, and and then at the end of the day, it's like, well, what was my indication for doing that? Right.
0: Yeah. That's kind of our approach too. I mean, what about, so we, we sometimes we'll have patients who've uh, asked like, oh, can you like schedule IV infusions and in, like the infusion <laughs> clinic, that kind of stuff. And I mean, I think everyone has their own comfort zone and that's like a little bit beyond mine, but what do you, what do you, how would you approach that?
2: So, that's the, this becomes like, an, uh, this is where you become a politician. Um, <laughs> um, I'm not a fan of that, um, but it, but sometimes I'll negotiate, a again, a bridge. Right. So right. I'll say, okay, if we do this for four weeks, I'm just an mm-hmm. arbitrary yeah. number, yeah. Um, then my expectation is you're going to be doing this, you know, the rehab program or the conditioning exercises. Right. And if that's a bridge to get you to, to do that, okay, we can negotiate it, but I'm not going to, but I, I put a firm you know, stop point yeah on, on things. And it's not always easy because, you know, when someone feels better <laughs> with fluids, um, it's, you want to feel better and it's hard right. to you know take that away, but it's still, you know, after a while you're, you're not gonna have any access. I'm very cautious about that. And I try to avoid that, but if that's, what's going to get us to a commitment to a more durable, robust, long-term plan, we, it's a lot of discussion. Yeah, it's it's more the exception, not the rule.
1: Right. I wanted to ask you. So we've been talking about these adolescents with orthostatic intolerance and uh, you know concomitant GI symptoms, and it seems like we are seeing an increased number of these uh, adolescents over time who have this overlap, who have this combination of of symptoms. Do you think that's a true increase or is it just increased awareness and pickup like do you have an idea of what's happening
2: there i was gonna say uh, yes i think it's multifactorial i think one we're recognizing it more i mean the analogy would be you know if you go back a generation or so in terms of pediatric ibd i mean mm-hmm. pediatric gastroenterologists never did full colonoscopies you do a flexig at most and now mm-hmm. it's that's the standard of care is doing a, a full endoscopy and and things have changed. And so, you know, could you argue are we seeing more more crones? You know, or are we recognizing them more? Yeah, probably probably both. So I think the first thing is I, I think we are recognizing it more. I think it's compounded by the the social media part of things. Because unfortunately, again, that's the misinformation thing. Um there's a lot more misinformation sometimes than there is accurate, you know, evidence based literature sometimes. So I think that's the second thing. Now, you could argue, um, are we seeing, you know are there microbiome issues are there you know other types of infectious precipitating issues possibly so i think the answer is yeah we are we're, we're definitely seeing it more um, but i think it's kind of a three prong we're recognizing it more hope we should be recognizing it more there are other conditions that we're recognizing more as well we talked about the hypermobility issues and things that that can compound things i think our job is you know Patients can Google and social media and TikTok, um, everything they like to do. Um, and our job is really to kind of bring it in and say, yeah. I wish I could say it's, you know, 50% social media, 30% more. I, I, I don't know, but social media is still fascinating to me. It's like, I think the technology has evolved faster than kind of our, our brains have in a lot of ways. And, yeah. and so, and it's, and it's dangerous because you know, people will you know, make suggestions or say, go see this doctor, they'll give you this. And I think it's important to have support, I mean, for patients, for families, I don't mean to, to minimize that, but, but it's also important to have yeah, the right information. And so um, I do think that's, we're, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, I mean, you're talking to two of the
0: authors of our upcoming NASPGIN position paper on social media. I mean, there's opportunities and definitely huge risks and uh, I mean, that's a whole nother discussion. But yeah, I mean, I think we've all seen it. Yes, there's good parts of it, finding community, and of course, there's bad, and uh, so it was helpful for you to kind of walk through everything with us as we get closer to kind of wrapping things up. So, one question that we, especially having had such like a interesting career path, something we ask everybody. So, looking back on your career as a whole, like what's what do you think is the best advice that you've gotten, and what advice do you have for our listeners?
2: I think it's important to sort of face every challenge and take every challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's a lot of things in hindsight I'm thinking like, my God, what did I do that? Um, <laughs> but you know, the whole thing is you're, you're, your, your, your character is kind of defined by the pathway in which you get there. And so, so if you ask me, do I regret doing a surgery residency? Absolutely not. Right. I mean, I wish I were like six years younger, I guess, but, <laughs> but um, you, you got to take on some adventure in life. And oftentimes, oftentimes you fail. Um, but I think it's really our failures that define us mm-hmm. more than our successes sometimes. And so, um, so yeah, I'm at this stage. I, don't have uh, I? Don't have regrets. I Can't say it's been a straight arrow path for me, right, um, right. but it's um, oh, but it's been a fun ride so far, and so I, I think I still have a little little time left to keep doing this. So uh, <laughs> we'll keep forging ahead.
0: Yeah, that's great because I think you know, even for certainly for as a trainee, even as you know, junior faculty, I think you kind of when you're like training, you kind of assume once you get to become an attending, then that's it, that's what you do. No, but it's, it's really it cool stagnant. to hear. Yeah, so many of the other things people do after that?
2: I mean, let's, let's face it. You know, when I, when I was in class on Tuesday night, uh, um, for my last core class and yeah, I kind of st- stand out just a bit. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm the oldest person in that room right now. I mean, I'm, I'm not that old, I hope I mean, but, right, right, right. but, um, but yeah, it, but the interesting thing about it is it's, so it's, it's, it could be humbling, but it worked out to be quite the opposite mm-hmm. that, you know, some of the, the students in the class are like, wow, you have, you have experience. And I'm, I think it's it's important to kind of shake it up um, once in a while. So I would say keep it interesting. And yeah. if something seems like it's a crazy thing to do. Yeah, maybe you should do it.
1: Yes, I love it. <laughs> well, I, and I, I just like the fact that you know you had this very um, uh, wandering path to where you're at right now, and it's going to continue to wander as you head in different directions because chaos. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> <It's> my <laughs> name. Yeah. Right. But I, I really like the fact that um, you know even those offshoots or those detours um have added to where you're at it wasn't that you needed to backtrack and back out of something it was you know and it was additive um and it it all adds up to who you are now and and so that's important for for our trainees and early career listeners to to have that mindset that you know, whatever they are doing is going to add to where they will be in the future.
2: And that would be sort of my parting words of wisdom is that I think, and I, I learned this from people a lot smarter than I am, um, that it really is, it, you think about it, it's it's about the journey, not the, you know, not getting through things. And I think early on, even in when I first started in my surgery residency, it's like I can I can stay up like every other night for six years and I can do this and then it'll be over and, I, and then I can check that box. And, and I think that's probably not the best approach. And I think that's what I have learned from, you know, from, <laughs> making multiple mistakes is um, I think it really, you know, it's, it's sort of that, that process that defines you. And early on I was like, okay, if I could, I could just get through this, then I could do my fellowship then I could just get through that. And yeah, because no one likes being up for like, you know, 72 hours at a time. Right. I was, yeah, but by a similar token, I think I actually enjoyed my pediatric residency. I know it's, you know, residency is residency, but I think um, that's what I kind of learned from the whole idea of like, yeah, okay, I just got to get through this to, you know, life is short, you know? And so, so I would say, yeah, it's important. If you're doing, even if you're doing a residency, and you're like, well, in two more years, I can get, I can just sign off and be done. Probably not the best approach. Um, that's what I've learned from, like I said, my multiple mistakes and chaotic lifestyle.
1: Well, that's 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 a great parting words. Um, this has been a fantastic discussion. Like Peter's saying. saying, um, do you have any final words for our listeners?
2: Um, I, I think the, the the chaos thing pretty much uh, covered. It. <laughs> but like I said, yeah, you should you should. Uh, do what you enjoy and enjoy what you do. And, um, yeah, that'll be, that'll be my, my last, uh, my last bit of marginal wisdom. wisdom. Yes. <laughs> thank like you it. so much. It was thank great you. to talk to you. Absolutely. All
0: right. So what an awesome episode, you know, I think it was so helpful to talk to Dr. Uh, Fortunato about a topic that we're all encountering more and more often. So we just want to thank him again for taking the time to sit down with us during his busy schedule at NASP again.
1: And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. You know, number one, tell... A person about the podcast. Uh, two, leave a review on Apple Podcast, to help others discover us. And three, on our Bus proud page, there is a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPEGAN Foundation. And you can also get there through <laughs> www.naspGN.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPegan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs.
0: And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests, and a subject to change with advances in the field.
1: Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye everybody.